everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Yeah, this is filmed live, um, so it's recorded as well as um, there may be some interactions with the audience or no? Yes, that's right. There'll be um, so the, the audience will be able to interact with us as we talk. We'll ask them to ask questions. Everybody, if you've got them, please do that. And then more, uh, we get a lot more listeners that are replay. So we, we basically, um, and we turn this into a podcast also. So it'll become both verbal and, and listening wise, sometimes not as good as it is because you're able to watch the, uh, the video also if it's in the webinar mode, but lots of different ways in which to uh, interact with it. So. That'll be great. So, Jonathan, I noticed, and, and, and Arib's screening here um, on, uh, this is a cool picture, by the way, which is uh, obviously your, your private laboratory, but I noticed another Lundgren on the page here a little bit further down. Is that uh, somehow related? Yep. Uh, so, Ian might be on that web page. That's my boy. He's just turned 18, and... Uh, he uh, he can cite idea a rabbit beetle walking around out in the yard. So I think that that uh, says something about some of his skills there. And then Christina Lynn, my partner, is also on that page. She actually made the page for it. So. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So uh, families are important, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. That's so cool. <laughs> um, so we're gonna just make this very informal. I'm just, you and I are just gonna chat. We're gonna let Areeb scroll. He's usually really good about sort of following what we're talking about and he'll go to a different place on your page and maybe it'll, it'll interact and relate to what it is that we're talking about. And we're just gonna just have fun here and just get to know each other a little bit. Talk and the audience can weigh in with questions whenever they have them or comments or other thoughts, so. Okay, great. So I don't need to give any presentation at all. Nope, unless you choose to. If you'd like to, we're more than happy to have you do that too. But uh, otherwise, we'll just keep this informal. And then usually when we get really cool speakers, we ask them if they'd come back again sometime. And then at that point, we'd love to have a presentation um, okay. or, even a or even a course. So, so are you a long-term South Dakotan? Uh, well, I moved in 2004, so it's like 17 years now, which is, uh, yeah, that's a long time, I guess. I'm getting old. Um, and, and before that, it, it looked like uh, entomology was uh, was an education area. Tell, tell yeah, us a little up, bit about your... Yeah. I grew up in Minnesota, which is, you know, not too far away. Um, and uh, ended up uh, taking an entomology course in, in college, and I just sort of decided that's what I'd like to sort of specialize on, 
and uh, was a good choice. Um, entomologists like to joke that we're biologists with jobs because uh, there's a lot of bugs that need to be addressed. Uh, but I, I never really looked at at insects that way from a pest perspective. And that is kind of an interesting difference. I mean, entomologists are different than a lot of other folks that are working in uh, like agronomy and, and things like that. Because, you know, I mean, we love the organisms that we're studying. I mean, we just, that's the reason why we got in. Weed scientists don't necessarily love weeds, right? And plant pathologists don't, I mean, they're not like passionate about you know, as a disease that they just have really, but with insects, we we really like those things. And that does kind of change your perspective on, on how, uh, how to manage everything. And did eventually the move to South Dakota get, uh, get um, motivated by your ability to buy land there and, and having it maybe be cheaper? And let's say in Minnesota. By the way, I was in Mankato over the weekend. Oh, uh, you were. I went to school. I went to school in Mankato. Uh, met my wife, who is uh, who's from Fairfax, Minnesota, also. So we actually did go to Fairfax also over a weekend. But I was there for a reunion and a homecoming um, for my college, and and um, and so colors are changing I, right now, weren't they? Yeah, although I'll tell you, it's certainly dry. I don't know if you've been as dry as they are over just a little bit farther south and east of you. Yeah, it was horrible this year. Yeah. Um, so anyway, back to my question: what what prompt what uh, what motivated the move to South Dakota? Yeah. So uh, uh, ended up getting my doctorate in entomology down in Illinois, and then. Uh, Pretty much right out of grad school, I got a job as a research entomologist at the USDA lab in Brookings, and um, and I worked there for 11 years, and then uh, quit, and decided to do something totally different and kind of a little bit crazy um, because I had a nice padded uh, uh, federal position that I could be very comfortable in for the rest of my life, but. I decided to do something much different and, and got out of the scientific matrix in order to try to use science to, to help people and, um, and to help save the planet and to help save us. So I thought uh, that maybe the, uh, a good way of doing that would be to um, uh, sort of get out of that matrix and rethink how science is applied to our food system. And and so I could choose anywhere to do that or all around the country and uh, decided to stay put. And um, there was a lot of reasons for that. Number one, you did mention it's much cheaper to live here than many other places in the U.S. But also, you know, this is ground zero for where change has to happen, right? Right. We're, right. we're on the interface of corn and soybeans and more uh more arid regions of the U.S. where grazing and, and diverse crop rotations are trying to take hold, and and we're one of the top honey-producing states. And there's a yeah, so this is this is a very strategic location from which to shoot from around the U.S. 
So as you made that change and you went from the federal entomology situation to now a regenerative uh, farmer, did you meet some resistance from some of those colleagues that uh, that you'd been with for years in, in the in the more traditional ag realm where maybe at least funding was was coming from places that you aren't probably very highly willing to endorse today um, and you know places like uh, potentially things like Cargill or Monsanto or others like that. Yeah, so, um, you know, we I tried changing the system from within, right? I, I started meeting the farmers that were telling uh, uh, me that there was a better way, right? That, um, that, that by focusing on soil health and, and regenerative practices of conserving life on their farms, they just didn't have pest problems anymore. And and I and I went out and looked at their farms and, and they weren't kitten and there was something going on there, um, and so we used our science to try to validate that and showed that you know our food system is really brittle right now and we do need to be thinking outside of the box a little bit. And then I also met some beekeepers, and these beekeepers were telling me, wait a minute, um, the uh, pesticides are killing our bees. I said, no, 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 you know, I mean, the data is not, uh, I mean, sure, that might be contributor, but there's multifaceted uh, uh, reasons for the bee die off, and, and we need to be looking at, you know, and they're like, no, 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 Jen, come on out. You come on out and watch our bees die in front of the hives, and then you tell us the pesticides that they just sprayed next door are the ones that are doing it. And that changed things. You know, we did the research, and sure enough, the pesticides are killing their bees, and and that was enough um, that made it much more challenging to to do my science. Um, I was went from being one of the top scientists in the U.S. I was given an award by the by Obama in the White House to to, to having science suppressed, and and that's not okay. So um, makes you question why you got into this whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, so again, I, again, I'm a regenerative rancher and farmer and have been for the last 15 years. Um, and, it's, and we live off the income from our farm. Um, if, if we're not profitable, we're, we're looking for you know other ways to get get income so we we have to be in a situation where we're making money doing what we're doing um and i know that's an at least as i read your website that that's an attitude that that you take also um what's really interesting is is the science that you've been able to combine with the farming um that one cover page on your website with the picture of, of, of three people enjoying themselves around a lab table with microscopes and a, a fume hood in the background. And, and all of that means that you've been able to, to take that science from a highly funded, um, very um, 
probably well-stocked uh, laboratory situation at the federal level to maybe not as highly funded as you'd like, but you know, and, and, and needing to make use of space more efficiently and so on um, at, at the, the private research level that it looks like you're doing now. So tell us, tell us about that. How, how have uh, you been able to maintain the research side of things um, in the private setting that you're in now, and and uh, and how how does that work compared to the way it worked when you were in the public setting? Well, it's a different world, and there isn't an instruction book for what we're trying to do. Uh, Farmer-driven science, huh? Um, what a concept! Uh, when I got started six seasons ago, well, number one, you know, one of the, I mean, science has to change if we're going to change our food system. And and that was the basis for why we started ICDISIS Foundation of Blue Dasher Farm is, is this integration that scientists need to be farmers. Um, that, that there's a whole set of metrics that scientists are assessing themselves by, you know, peer-reviewed papers and, and uh, committees that you've served on and how many millions of dollars you brought in and grant funds that funds the bureaucracy of an institution and how many graduate students you pump through the puppy mill. And and, and I looked at those, those met, metrics and it was like, which of these do farmers care about? And, and it was zero. But the only way you get a job in, in, in science is by adhering to those metrics of success. And I was like, wait a minute. I mean, there's this gulf. The things that are important to the farming community are completely and utterly different than what's important to the scientific community. And we aren't running the same path anymore. And so we had to reintegrate science back into food communities. And I still think that that's the case. And, and that really is what drove this, right? So I'm a farmer, I'm a beekeeper, I'm a rancher. Um, but Blue Dasher Farm is also kind of a training ground for the next generation of scientists. And so farm income is certainly important in that, um, in that training, but we also have a really, really active research program. I have six doctoral level scientists that are, uh, are now on staff and, and uh, we're working on, I think something like nine states and two Canadian provinces um, trying to, generate the data to, to change our food system that farmers need for making decisions as well as policymakers. So uh, that's been a really exciting evolution. So the farm that you're on, um, Blue Dasher, was it degraded pretty significantly when you acquired it? They gave us the land. They said this land does not does not have any value. So if you want to buy the house and the buildings, if you want the land, that's fine. You can have that too. But if you don't want it, then let us know. I mean, we might be able to find somebody to take it because it's all this like perennial grassland and like rolling hills and and uh, and wetlands and crap like that that nobody really wants. Well, we've taken that and and turned that into our really amazing place through some management decisions and incorporation of animals and and uh, bees into the uh, farming operation. We've actually farmed those native grasses for seed 
and we've established an orchard and and uh, the prairie. We woke it up and uh, through burns and um, and grazing, we have one, an unbroken prairie that's never been tilled that that uh, is really spectacular in its diversity. It was all the seed was there and it was waiting to be woken up. Um, but the brome had kind of taken everything over. So, yeah. Uh, so, no, the farm really wasn't degraded. It, I think I battle a lot of herbicide residues. That was one of the things that they were able to use as much as they wanted to was pesticides. So, I think that that's really affected things. But since we backed off and started incorporating the right sorts of management, we've seen things really wake up. Yeah. It's been an exciting journey. By the way, one quick question from the audience. Lynn asks, um, which Canadian province, and, and she must be Canadian, so um, are you working with? Uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Um, I've been to Quebec and Ontario speaking with farmers and stuff. But, um, those are the two that we've had, uh, I think we had sampled 60 farms or something like that over three every year for three years as they've transitioned over to regenerative. And when you work with other farmers anywhere, it doesn't have to be just the Canadian circumstance, how, how is that interaction? Do they, um, are you acting as an advisor and a mentor and, and how, how does the relationship work? No, they're the experts. What are you kidding me? Uh, so we learn from them. We're we're after the leaders in the field as well as people that are interested in transitioning, and um, and we want to learn what it is that they're doing that is making them so successful. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we were boots on the ground on a bunch of different farms all over the U.S. More than 200 this year. We'll be up to uh, 1,000 of them. By 2023 annually, uh, it's called the Thousand Farm Initiative. It's one of the largest agroecological experiments that's ever been even attempted, but it's what's needed right now. And how are they collecting data that then is going to be used? I assume at some point, or is already being used and compiled to 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 create long-term positive interaction from this process we're collecting the data so okay. we go out to their farms and we actually do that data collection we're hoping that eventually we'll be able to rely on on sort of farmers farmer science uh, scientists to collect their own information about their sites but for right now the spine of this experiment really has to be conducted by our team if we are going to keep the methods consistent across all these different geographic regions as well as different uh, commodities or food systems. So just a little bit more about a little of my past that has some relevance here is back in the early 80s, 82 through 85, I was involved with a group out of Minnesota called America Energy Farming Systems that 
made the effort to um, create a new crop for the country called Jerusalem artichokes. And in that process, they hired the company that I had in the consulting realm at that point to do what you're doing, um, but with their farmers throughout the United States. And at one point, I had 15 agronomists slash scientists out in the field in the summer of, of 83 and 84, gathering data and doing probably somewhat similar to what you're doing. We did ask these folks to be um, farmer scientists though more, and mainly it was collecting wet weather data. Remember, the weather data at that time wasn't nearly as digital as it is today. And so, you know, we asked them to collect rainfall amounts, temperature levels, and do, you know, observations at least that we wouldn't be able to do unless we were there literally all the time. Um, and then we kept journals, and um, I still have five 18-inch file boxes full of that data, which unfortunately never really got to be used to the level that it should have been because this company in American Energy Farming Systems went under. There's a large story there. This crop, which went from literally nothing to almost 5 million acres, and they were trying to use the soybean model, um, which is an interesting one, which very few people even know, related to when soy went from nothing prior to World War II up to, you know, hundreds of millions of acres um, because of a market, really, that, that was unfulfilled because of um, Asian um, vegetable oil that was no longer available during World War II. Um, and then Hubbard, the Hubbard guy and the Cargill guy, both inventing almost simultaneously an extraction methodology for soy. Um, all those things came together, and that's what created the soy explosion that occurred. But anyway, um, at some point, I'd love to talk with you more about this now old, it's you know 30-year-old data now, but still data, still valuable from hundreds of farmers um, which are probably all still farming, or a lot of them are, or their families are, their offspring are, um, that could be useful in some of the things that you're doing, and that we have really just never had the had the time to be able to analyze. Um, to yeah, that's so cool. Them. Yeah. Yep. No, that's uh, there's a lot of data that's sitting around out there, um, and and uh, we're we're doing our best to try to get it out, publish. We publish it as quickly as we try to gather it. So, and that's um, a struggle, that's for sure. So, so, how, so, who are some of your heroes in the regenerative ag area? Oh gosh, you know, I started talking with folks before regenerative was really a word. Uh, so. Um, I remember going down to no-till on the plains um, down in, in uh, Salina, Kansas. Uh, yeah. Brian Lindley really brought together a number of wonderful people um, that that I think was that no-till movement that kind of became the cover crop movement that kind of became the regenerative agriculture movement, um, you know, 
cover crops was weird, wacky stuff back when we started talking at those tables. Or, uh, and so, uh, but that incubator was really, I think, what inspired a lot of what is now being dubbed as regenerative farming. Um, who are my heroes? Dwayne Beck is a wonderful guy. I really respect the heck out of him. Um, Will Harris is, I could, yeah, I could listen to him all day long. Uh, I haven't gotten down to his, his place down in Bluffton yet, but I sure can't wait to do so. He came to Blue Dasher, though, and that was nice for him to be able to speak to some of our uh, people uh, at our field day. Um, Gail Fuller has always been a good friend. He's down in Kansas. Uh, Gabe Brown is a good Gabe. friend. Kelly Mulville out in California. He's a, yeah, these are people that I really respect a lot. Cool. Well, as you know, all of those have been guests of ours at one time or another, every one of those names. And um, we try our best to try to, to get as many people that, that sort of try to be economic, do things to make a little money making the planet better. Um, yeah. And in the ag area, which is my passion, um, it's always great when we can get somebody like yourself. And tell you somebody eventually you're going to want to follow more is Zebulon Harrell in in um, New Zealand. And Zebulon is running 11,000 um, you lamb um, in a completely regenerative setting where he inherited from his father the complete opposite a little bit like Gabe did with with what he did and and what Will did frankly but Will's situation was you know no nah, you know not that long ago I guess what if I remember right 91 when he told his dad I'm I'm not going to stay here we're not going to continue um, this this legacy if uh, if I'm not given the ability to do this the way I want to do it which isn't going to be anything like you did it dad um, yeah. so um, and when, what Will's done with the not just his own economy and the economy of the farm and ranches there, but the whole community economy. He's revitalized Bluffton. Bluffton wouldn't have existed today. It'd be it'd, it'd be under. And and the same thing, as you know, is probably becoming the case with many South Dakotan communities uh, where they're going the way of the dinosaur unless they dramatically come in and change things so yeah i think a lot of them think a lot of uh people that are kind of grew up in the current system think that the answer is consolidation and industrialization and increasing efficiency and all of those items um but that it, it, i mean even in our own county <laughs> yesterday we were at a meeting trying to stop a large slaughterhouse from moving in down the road and it's like uh development 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 that's what matters and it's like boy we got to be thinking long term here guys because these capo builders the only ones that make money off of that are the are the capo builders themselves the farmers lose so but it sure doesn't look good on paper doesn't it no yeah that's right um Real quick, um, Lynn's asked a couple others really nice questions, and I'm going to start with the longer one from her. 
Um, do you have any recommendations on how to deal with buttercup overtaking one's pastures? That's something I know some farmers that are doing their best to be regenerative are dealing with. Some are mm. saying that the only way to deal with it is herbicide. It would be great to have another way. Okay, I wonder where they're at. Yeah, Lynn, tell us where you're at. I'm guessing she's in Canada somewhere because she's the one that asked. Or And I'm guessing Lynn is a lady. I don't know that for sure. But Lynn, would you tell us where you're at? Um, in the in the world, she also asked, "How are your bees doing this year?" And I don't know whether that means that it's a tough year for her with bees wherever she's at. But how how has this year been for your bees? Oh well, first off, let's answer the buttercup question. You know, I mean, yeah, we've got certain species that tend to uh, adapt. Pests are never the problem, right? Pests are always a symptom. Let's figure out what the problem is. More often than not, it's too much disturbance, not enough diversity. Um, what tools do we have at our disposal to help manage plant communities? We have fire, we have grazing, we have competition. Um, and so, Generally, those are the tools that I advocate for people to try to use, especially in pasture systems. Um, if you're grazing that, maybe integrate some other animals into your herd. Uh, things like goats or sheep might enjoy eating that buttercup, uh, whereas cattle may avoid it, for example. Um, you know, a burn uh, every few years can really wake things up. And the land up here is adapted to that. And chances are real good buttercup isn't. So waking up some of those native warm season grasses and cool season grasses with a with a burn might be uh, just what the doctor ordered. Um, bees, how'd they do this year? Uh, well, they're not all dead yet. Uh, we had almost no honey produced, though. Um, it was so dry. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, there's flowers out there, therefore the bees must be making honey. You know, in reality, there's very few honey-making days because uh, everything has to be just right. Uh, you've got to have the flowers, sure, but you also have to have the right weather. And uh, if it rains, you got two days where it doesn't, where all the nectar is kind of washed out. And if it doesn't rain, you're not, you may have flowers, but you're not producing any nectar. Um, if it gets too windy, you know, the bees can't get to those flowers very well. And so really there's a couple of sweet spot days uh, every year. And we had probably zero of those this year. So um, the bees kind of limped along, combining hives, um, trying, to, trying to goose them up before the winter time. But uh, we've never had our bees survive the winter. Um, so. She, um, by the way, she said that she's in Canada near Edmonton, um, but the people in the group that she's in that related to her question about uh, Buttercup are uh, are from the northwestern U.S., so it must be, you know, Washington, Oregon, so on. Um, but she liked, then she says that's an idea related to the grazing and burning. Um, by the way, 
went a little bit from my perspective because we have buttercup that could be a problem here although it, i would not say that it's been one for at least a number of years because we have a very diversified grazing situation with um with browsers as well as grazers as well as combos animals which goats can certainly be the latter but we're we're unique in that we have one of the larger and and we're very strong advocates of alpacas and alpacas will eat anything um oh we want some alpacas really badly on the desert um well we'll have to talk about how maybe we can help you do that at some point yeah, but, that's um, yeah um but they will literally um graze, browse, do both, and they can be pastured with goats, they can be pastured with cattle, they can be cat pastured with horses. So they're they're very, very adaptable to lots of circumstances. And anyway, but and we we do selectively burn also. We we have a very opposite climate situation as you have, uh, Jonathan. We're an arid, high-altitude desert, essentially mountain, mountainy desert. So, 14 inches of annual rainfall, and most of that is snow. Um, and and so, like this year, I doubt we had an inch um, since our wow. snow, our snow, and that that's really low. But um, but we. Um, we changed our grazing because of that. I mean, we we changed and and we took our temporary pastures and shortened the time frame that we used them. Um, and and you know it was more work for us clearly, but but it, it we saw that that rainfall unless we got a change and it never happened uh, was going to force us to to go. And therefore, if you come to our farm now you would not know that we just went through the driest summer, at least in the 15 years that we've been here, um, because we we just didn't let grazing, you know, occur in a, a overgrazing situation, so. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Where is, so, are you in New Mexico or whereabouts? No, I'm, I'm north of Denver um, in, yeah. in the foothills between uh, Fort Collins and, and Boulder. And and so in a what we call hogback area. So I live in what most people you'd call it in South Dakota Canyon. So our lower end of where we have pastures that are about half a mile wide is is a 5,300 feet, and then the canyon walls that go up, and they're not it's not straight up, but that go up like this are 800 feet higher on one side and 700 feet higher on the other, and wow. Our geology is interesting in that we have um, granitic geology on the east side of our valley. Our valley is straight north-south, and on the east side is granitic, and on the west side is sandstone. Um, so historically, you know, this was a lake on the, the west side, and on the east side was an upwelling. So because of that, we have a whole different vegetation status on both those sides. Um, which we also have managed grazing based on that. And, and then we always tell people, we take the same perspective that Mark Shepard does, which is stun, that we try to do most of the work in a pasture area or a, a, an agricultural growth area at the front end by putting berms and swales in place 
getting in place so we can manage that 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 runoff that we get, which occurs in in big chunks usually. Again, didn't happen this year, but uh, anyway, uh, Stan being stri strikingly terrific, utter neglect. So once we get something established, we try to do as little as possible in terms of additional management if it's working. So again, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So. Wow, um, that's great. I'd love to see it sometime. I'll bet it's beautiful there. Actually, I'll be in your area in a month. Well, come and visit. It still could be very nice, and we could have gotten winter started by then, just like you, you know, just like you could have. But uh, um, yeah, love to love to have you come by and shoot. I'll, I'd love to do the same to visit Blue Gasher at some point. So our our ranch is called Mountain Sky Ranch, and uh, okay, and it uh, we have about. We own about 45 acres, but then we have grazing rights on about a thousand acres that surround us. So we have cattle in, um, we have, so we do a feeder cattle situation where we buy moms and babies in, in May, put them out in this area that we can rotate. And then about now, we're, we're going to be a little, little earlier this year than most years because of the drought, uh, the drought. But then we just take them off, and and during that time we don't feed them. We they they live off the land, and uh, we have we have water in about three different locations that we have to make sure we keep give them access to. But um, but other than that, again, it's a you know we, we we make our money on the on the the pounds gained by those calves um, during that time, and. Uh, we buy them at auction in the in the spring and we sell them at auction in the fall. It's just as easy mm -hmm. as it can be. Well, that's um, awesome. Yep. Sounds like a good plan. So tell us, tell us about how have you attracted and and the, the amazing looking staff that you have. Do, do do those people find you? Do you go out and find them? And and uh, I you know a lot of find how we have attracted such talented people to, to kind of a pretty a pretty isolated pocket in South Dakota. Uh, but we've yeah. had people from all over the country as well as all over the planet that have come to, to be a part of this. Um, and so, you know, the yeah, our mission is much bigger than ourselves. And I think that that has a lot to do with why we We've attracted such wonderful people. And how about the lodging situation for people? Do you have on-site lodging, or do people live in out in the community and so on? How, how's that? Uh, for the most part, people we've had people live. We have a fairly large house, and we've had people live in the basement before. But we've kind of gotten away from that um, for a little while here, at least, and we'll see where life goes. Uh, but uh, for right now, almost all of the staff ends up living in neighboring communities, and then they carpool in every morning and carpool out every evening. So it works out pretty well. And then when when we need to go someplace, we have uh, well, my kids are getting older, and so um, we have them or their friends and stay there and, and help out on the farm while we go off and stir the pot for a while. And how are you interacting with any of the, the 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 state institutions, for example? So with 
any interaction with SDSU or USD or or yeah, you know, we any, have great interactions with local universities, USDA, NRCS, uh, USGS in the area. Um, I have adjunct status at the university, and so I can put some graduate students through. We do have graduate students that are. Um, are uh, that go through South Dakota State, but we also have a, I have a master's student that's going through Nebraska and a doctoral student who's going through UC Davis. So we we're free agents. We don't have to um, have uh, our students end up coming from just or getting their degrees through just one institution. It's been kind of nice. So what's the um, the genesis of the two names you have, Ecdysis, that one you're going to have to really even help me because I'm I probably should know what that means, but I don't. And then Blue Dasher must have some something related to just either local folklore or history or something. It's it's a little more a uh, little little broader name. Yeah. So tell us tell us the genesis of both of those. You bet. Uh, ecdysis is a geeky entomology term. It means shedding the old skin or metamorphosis. And uh -huh. so that seemed like it was awfully appropriate to what we were trying to do. And then um, uh, Blue Dasher is a dragonfly species. And uh, Dragonflies are wonderful critters. They're uh, great ecosystem indicators, um, wonderful predators, um, and uh, just a good barometer of environmental health. And so uh, we picked the Blue Dash and we love the name and, and uh, that was uh, what we decided on. So do you have any, any um, aquatic communities on your farm or broadly across those that you work with yeah and we work with, yeah we work with ducks unlimited up here uh looking at how agricultural practices affect ephemeral wetlands of the area and on blue dasher farm itself we have wetlands and uh and a pond you know blue dasher isn't very large it's only 53 acres but on that 53 acres we have a lot packed in and so uh, it's it's a neat place. Well, again, at some point, maybe we can talk more about potential collaboration there. I, I, um, by, by, um, not by training initially, but by um, experience, um, I've become an aquatic entomologist in a pretty big way. Uh, and I actually did do my PhD work um, at the University of Idaho on um, the Snake River system, which is a, a run-of-the-river um, reservoir system now, unfortunately, but was looking at coronamids and, and mayflies and, and caddis and any number of other aquatic insects. And I've always been a, a big fly fisherman, so clearly the more you understand about the uh, life cycles of those insects, the better you can do with time flies and understanding how fish are going to want to want to bite them, uh, want to eat, want to grab them at least. So anyway, um, we have um, a system of 18 ponds in which we uh, 
we have different fish in, in a variety of them. We're able to screen them and keep them isolated. And in, in the biggest of those, which is about two and a half acres, we have 11,000 um, smallmouth bass that are one half pound and bigger. So mm -hmm. they're edible. The reason we know that number is that we do an annual harvest in December. So it's coming up here fairly soon. Mm -hmm. um, Electroshocking. And then we, we, we clip and we know when we are able to sample every year um, what, what our population is. And we sell those fish to caterers and, um, and, and food truck folks and, and a variety of people that I've met through the years. And, and we make a party out of our one day of, uh, of harvesting this fish. And, and then they'll have one or two special menu days um, with, with those fish. And uh, we make some money off of it. And, and essentially, yeah. other than that, we don't do anything. We, we don't feed them. Um, they're naturally fed by a combination of crayfish, which is probably their most, their most uh, important forage for our larger fish. And then obviously insects for the smaller fish um, hmm. of all different And we're six ounces away from the state record smallmouth in this, in this pond. So wow. at some point in your future, we will have the state record that'll come out of this pond. So that's really cool. So of both agriculture as well as recreation uh, on the fishing side. So. Neat. Um, Very cool. So, yeah, we love the idea of sort of uh, yep farming fish and those that uh, and and trying to integrate aquatic you know or aquaponics or whatever i don't know what you want to call it but um uh raising up some fish out of as one of the outputs of blue dasher we'll see i think that'd be a lot of fun yeah well and and, and the, the ability to do floating rafts much like the the mayans did historically still do um some of their in the in mexico and then the chinese have been doing it now to where you can have PVC um, drainage pipe, for example, six inch on rafts, and that they can become literally shade for fish because fish mm -hmm. don't like to be visible and don't like in the sunlight, and they'll just float around in a pond situation. Doesn't need to be even very big pond, and the water going through the pipe will actually um, provide enough water and nutrients for plants to grow. So mm -hmm. you can use Dixie cups in holes in the pipe and styrofoam to cause it to float and let the water movement through wind and, and the movement of just waves and such um, be able to flood the plants. And you can grow you know, greens and other things depending on the time of the year. Um, and then uh, you do have to separate the, the roots from the fish somehow, which we usually put um, a wire mesh, like a, a screen mesh underneath, so the fish can't get to the roots. But, um, but other than that, it, it's a really cool way to to both grow plants that can be edible, as well as um, add value to the fish that are in in ponds too. So, cool. Um, yeah, I'd love to see that system. It'd be a lot of fun. So, 
we got about uh, 12, 13 minutes left here. Let me uh, see what other questions we might have. I don't see any yet, but if people in the audience, if you have questions, please please put them into the into the chat area, and we'll make sure that I, we get Jonathan asked. Um, but tell us some ways that 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 our group might be able to help you. Um, we have. 30,000 people that are a part of our community somewhere all around the world. And, and um, we're always looking to help those people that we think are doing things that are the right way. And you, your group certainly is doing that. So what are, what are ways that, that our community could be helping you? Well, there's a lot of different ways. You know, funding is always appreciated. This research doesn't do itself. And uh, it's not something that large granting uh, uh, opportunities end up funding very often. And so uh, we really rely on donations as part of our scientific um, uh, endeavors. We're also looking for our places to do our science. So if you have an interesting farm that you'd like included in Thousand Farm Initiative, then uh, please, you know, uh, let us know. Holler at me. And uh, hopefully there will be a link to our social media and, our, and our, my email address so that people can do just that. And, um, and then make sure that the science is reaching the decision makers. So we have a number of uh, published studies now, and uh, those can be used for developing um, decision making frameworks. Uh, maybe it's by farmers themselves. That, or maybe it's by policymakers, maybe it's by uh, other members of the community. So those would be some really important ways to help. Very cool. Um, and I'm assuming Areeb's already uh, scrolled through to where some of the donation could occur. And um, do you have a form that people will fill out or they just reach out to you if they have a farm that they might wanna be entered into your thousand farm initiative? Yeah, well, uh, we've got a form that's available, and uh, so but reach out to me via email, and we can see what we can do. Right now, we're focusing on the U.S., continental U.S., and maybe a little bit in Canada. So, um, but hopefully, Thousand Farm will be wildly successful, and we'll be able to implement it all over the planet. Very cool. Um, what? Um, what other what other um, insight would you like to give to our audience here today about what you're up to and what you're doing? Boy, I don't know. You know, I think that uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, there's a lot of things that are that are challenging the planet, aren't there? And it's really easy to focus on all those problems. But at the same time, we have some tremendous solutions too. And uh, regenerative agriculture is, is one of those solutions. I mean, we can use this to not only heal, you know, a, a farming operation, but also we can use this to heal the planet. So that's really exciting. Now it's just a matter of getting things done. And we need people that are to take bold action. You know, the days of waving our hands and, and pamphleteering and, you know, just talking about things. And those are those are behind us. There's a real sense of urgency. We need people doing something. And uh, so 
we really are trying to practice what we preach in that. And uh, we work very hard every day trying to, to bring some, uh, bring our food system around into something that can, that can be really a productive for both farmers as well as the planet. Do you get um, enough curiosity or any curiosity from um, industrial farmers that are around you and, and you're, you know, I know they're within very close proximity of where you're at. Um, do, do they come by and at least show some interest on a curiosity perspective? Uh, more and more often, yes. Um, you, you, change comes, you know, I'm a scientist, right? So are you, um, but I'm also a farmer. Change, change, yeah, we, we're not a data-driven society. And we, we may be getting to be a less data-driven society. Uh, and so that's real humbling. We need data in order to change our food system in a healthy way, um, but it's not sufficient to change behavior. What's necessary to change behavior is, is relationships and trust. And that, that's not something they teach you in graduate school. Um, and so um, how are we working within our own community? We're trying very, very hard to develop those relationships and friendships that can help to inspire change. And we had uh, we have some uh, conservative neighbors uh, that, that will come by and they'll start talking to you a little bit. And then, Eventually, the conversation turns to maybe grazing some cover crops on that field crop ground, and um, and incorporating some some soybeans and or rye into their soybeans just to see how it worked and uh, those kinds of ideas. So they're watching, and I'm not saying we're the ones that are changing them, but certainly we're allowing um, them to realize they're not alone. Yeah, and, and I used to always say, I haven't said this in a long time, that people have listened to me and us for five years know that I've said this, which is you ask a farmer, a typical industrial farmer, you know, why do you why do you sell almost everything you have through the elevator? And they'll say, well, my dad did it that way, and my grandpa did it that way, and that's the reason I do it that way. Yeah. So, is that a really good reason to be doing things? <laughs> um, so no. anyway, my, and I have, so my mother's side of my family um, were immigrants from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma in the land rush of the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And my cousins are now retiring from essentially running the family farms and my second cousins or their kids are now the ones that are running and they're and they're in Oklahoma and they're industrial they still you know it's it's what are yields you know what's our corn yield what's our wheat yield what's our you know how do we increase that yield year after year you know uh, how much how much ammonia do we use and and uh, you know, and they are—they don't have any soil. They have dirt, um, yeah. and they readily admit that. And I, I, they believe that they can continue to be 
generational, and I don't think they have a chance to be. I, I mean, I think this generation, my my second cousins are probably the end for those types of farms there in Oklahoma. So, um, yeah, I think so too. We, I'll give presentations for farmers all over the planet, and then and talk to them about regenerative agriculture. Sometimes I'll get them, you know, raising their hand that was, you know, that sounds really good. That's regenerative farming thing, but. I mean, what's it going to cost me to change? I, I'm invested in this current system. And I tell them that's the wrong question. What's it going to cost you not to change? It's going to cost you your farm. It's probably going to cost you your grandkids. Um, is that worth it? Uh, I don't think it is. And I think uh, we're living through a pretty massive evolutionary event right now. And the folks that are clinging on to the old way of doing things in an industrial manner aren't going to be around much longer, unfortunately. And um, hopefully we can help them to everybody to adapt and survive in this new world. Yeah. Well, we are right about at the top of the hour. And we're at, we try to be respectful to you as our speaker as well as to our audience. Anybody in the audience, if you've got any other questions, put them in here real quickly. We just got three or four minutes. And um, Arib, do you have any questions for uh, Jonathan? I don't have any questions. I was admiring the whole thing, like what he's doing and uh, what he has accomplished, I guess. So moving through his website, moving through his Instagram page, I love the pictures. I love the animals. So <laughs> I think uh, I think it's a shout Jonathan Arib is in Pakistan in in a very urban area, but over the years he's he's learned a lot about um, agricultural practices and, and, uh, yeah. and that's great. My grandfather used to do it and because I'm in the region of Punjab, which is a very agricultural area, but I have lived in the urban area basically. So, yeah, I think that connects me back to my heritage, I guess. I can understand things here and then go back and talk about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's awesome. Uh, Thanks, And you're young, my friend. You're going to have a lot more influence over time than, than Jonathan and I, who are a little bit older than you. And, and so um, your, your youth will serve you, serve you value in that. So. Um, so, Jonathan, any last thoughts as we uh, as we wrap up here? Nope. I think that uh, just reminding people that there's a lot of hope right now, and uh, it's an exciting time of change, and to be part of that change. Um, and then Lynn just threw in a rather long comment question. I'm just going to get to this real quickly. So let's see. Sort of off topic, and speaking of studies, Stefan Subkowiak, don't know that name, so um, talks about a study done on his farm on spraying milk, milkway to prevent fungus issues, but nothing was ever published, probably because it did so well. Do you know if there's any way to get one's hands on data for a study like that? I'd love to see 
someone grab that data and actually publish a paper on it. Well, aside from talking to the author or the the scientists, there really isn't a way, um, unless, yeah, depending on where it was conducted, I guess, maybe the institution has a, has a copy of it, but. And then here's a really cool one. Maybe we'll end on this. Um, this is from JM. Um, what can or should non-farmers with lawns do to transition their lawns to grow crops? Oh, let's see. To transition your lawns to grow crops, huh? Well, I, you know, uh, I would say uh, solarize it. Uh, the lawn, I mean, if you're going to do that, uh, and then put some plastic down that ends up killing that, you'll probably let it rise back up, do it again, and then uh, get your seed ready, get an annual cover down, and allow that to kind of start to take the place of that lawn. Um, if you let it just go, then you end up seeing a lot of weed development and things that you don't necessarily want to that until the system stabilizes um and then do, do not till the soil that is a, one of the worst things you can do is tilling that soil up so figure out a way of sowing seeds directly into the soil and mulching those in order to maintain control of the plant community and things like that so um, that's what we do here on blue dasher and by the way um zebulon who spoke with us Farrell, um, several months ago, um, has a website on what he calls polyculture paddocks. And a paddock would be what we'd call a lawn area here, and because he's not talking about a paddock for livestock. He's talking about what you can do. And, and he actually has a really good set of videos that you could go watch, JM, about how to convert, um, again, a lawn area into something growing edible crops and 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 he does again very little after prepping the soil like jonathan just described to provide you know a, a, a almost what you'd think about in a row cropping instead it is it's a um, a highly diverse cover situation that will then you know don't worry about weeds that you call them because they'll out they'll get out competed over time maybe take several seasons but then he has a combination of turnips and and greens and berries and a variety of others that are all growing in this one area and he has walkways just like you'd have in a, a certain circumstance but but no real rows and there's no as jonathan said um, no tilling um, because you just want that soil to get to get rich and you want those microbes that live near the surface typically to stay near the surface and don't till them down and and get rid of them which is the biggest mistake that people make and i and i made it all the time in the past um, until yeah. 15 years ago so so it was conventional um, knowledge that's for sure yeah that's what it was so um JM, you said, could you say his name again? Um, I'm not sure who you meant by that. Um, 
Zebulon. Zeb, yeah, Zebulon Farrell. And you can you can watch one of his uh, one of his presentations. He's he's actually done a couple with us um, on our system, and it's it's free. So just go into eatcommunity.com and, and go back and watch one of his presentations. Well, Jonathan, this was so fun. I I I probably only host about one out of three of our presentations anymore. I have a group of young people, and I just said I'm going to host this one today. I really wanted to spend time with you, so I've appreciated that. You are certainly welcome to come visit us here, and if you're in the area in a month or so, let's just stay in touch and figure out how okay. to do that. I'd love yeah. to come visit you some at some point in time. So. All right. Sounds real good. Thanks for having me. It was sure nice to meet you and talk to everybody. Sounds good. All right. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.